Every time it's like an American scandal, it's like, oh yeah, the president fucked a porn star and also like planted bugs in like his opponents and also like paid to have a guy killed. And every time there's like a Canadian scandal, it's like a prime minister signed a contract with improper intentions. And it's like, oh, I'm just so bored. Like somebody from Quebec signed a contract without fully disclosing a conflict of interest. This is the only thing that's going to be on the news for four months. I was trapped in at home in Canada for three months while I waited for my U.S. work visa to come through after finishing my master's. And if I'd heard the term SNC-Lavalin one more time, I was going to donkey kick our TV off the porch. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. and fabulous i'm jessica and i'm a steamed janelle fresh hot from the oven mm, that is that is my bedroom no but i have to turn off my air conditioning unit because it it sounds like a truck backing up it's basically as pre-war as the rest of the building so i'm melting and my dog is slowly puddling off the edge of my bed i too am more sweat than man at this point <laughs> but today's Delicious. topic actually starts in a much colder climate, because today we are talking about the Front de Libération du Québec, the Quebec Liberation Front, otherwise known as the FLQ, a domestic terrorist and paramilitary organization active in Canada during the 1960s. I just like that you managed to find a way to segue from, like, underboob sweat to <laughs> Quebec separatist domestic terrorism. I am always ready with a butter smooth transition from the <laughs> fact that my back is slick as a dolphin's to the fact that during the 1960s we had so many bombings and it's weird that nobody knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're just ready to segue any and all conversational topics into domestic terrorism. Specifically Quebec domestic terrorism. As an autistic, Half of my social skills are just dedicated to making the conversation about what I want to talk about. <laughs> and today, that's terrorism. I was going to say, you have to develop good social skills in order to have poor ones. What an achievement. Before digging fully into the FLQ, however, I'd like to first go over some background on mid-20th century Canadian politics and the Quebec sovereignty movement. Because otherwise, you motherfuckers ain't gonna understand shit. <laughs> I likewise expect that much of this will be new to many of our Canadian listeners. That's true. For all that the FLQ was a high-profile terrorist organization not far into Canada's recent past, it's not a history young Canadians are systematically taught, nor that one that Canadians outside the provinces of Ontario and Quebec are particularly tuned into. No, it's true. You and I both went to primary school in, uh, in Alberta, and so it's basically like four years of vaguely homoerotic French fur trade fantasies, and then like an afternoon of the FLQ, and then it was like back to the vaguely homoerotic fur trade fantasies. For me, it was just stories about portaging ad nauseum every year just like all right we're gonna start with like champlain hiking through the forest with a canoe over his head and then it's just the same thing next year 
As Canadian political issues go, Quebecois independence is perhaps one of the most widely known outside of Canada's borders, but I suspect most people outside of Canada are a bit, fair bit vaguer on the whys of it all. A shocking number of Americans are aware of the fact that there was a vote to separate Quebec from the rest of Canada, and they're all, like, under the impression that this is still an ongoing issue. Like, this is 100% of what they know about Canada. It's a very strange political issue to have made it onto the world stage. Like, I don't know how to tell them this, but that vote was in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many new and interesting provinces that are mad at each other. The sovereignty movement stems from a long-standing tension between Anglophone or English-speaking Canadians and Francophone or French-speaking Canadians, a tension that was baked in pretty much from the beginning. Boo, filthy Anglos. Filthy, says, filthy Anglos. Says the Anglo. <laughs> Just so you know, uh, in Canadian domestic politics, we have a bit of a nasty, a bit of an unfortunate habit of referring to people as French and English and we do not mean that they are from France, and we do not mean that they are from England. We just mean French-Canadian and English-Canadian. We don't even really mean that they speak French. Jessica and I are both designated as French-Canadians, despite the fact that English is our first, and in my case, pretty much only language. In Within the context of Canadian politics, Francophone is just as much a language designation as it is an ethnic identity. Canadians felt the same way about the French, the way that uh, Americans felt about the Irish. Except Canadians also hated the Irish. We're much more multifaceted than you are. <laughs> We're not into that melting pot thing where everyone just, like, sort of oozes together into one ball of hate. We prefer to distinguish into a mosaic of bigotry. We can hate numerous different types of Catholics. Jessica and I are only allowed to make these jokes as descendants of French Catholics ourselves. It's... Absolutely. Otherwise, it's a hate crime, you <laughs> goddamn Anglos. Yeah, if I was descended from one fewer boulanger, this would be completely unacceptable. You're descended from a bakery? <laughs> My grasp of French is incomplete. <laughs> My great-grandmother was a croissant. <laughs> also, it's worth noting that I'm a different type of French-Canadian than the type of French-Canadian being discussed now. Yeah, so I'm I'm not Quebecois. I have no skin in this game. I'm just gonna rip on them with the best of you. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a type of French that nobody likes. Hey, nobody knows enough about the Acadians to hate them. I'm an uncooked Cajun. I'm just we didn't they took us out of the oven. Uh, whereas I I am the type of French Canadian that we are talking about. So I want you to imagine that every single person I mention uh, looks exactly like Please me. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> They're all just like heavily accented Jessica Pijos. If if all of Quebec looked and acted like you, there would not have been a separatist vote. We would have kicked you out. <laughs> there would have been no democracy. This would have been a unanimous banishment. Uh, as a note, there are actually three different major uh, French Canadian cultural groups. Uh, the Acadians, uh, i.e. Janelle, who are inhabitants of Canada's maritime provinces on the East Coast. Hooray! Uh, the Métis, who are descendants of French settlers who intermarried with indigenous women, themselves predominantly Cree, which are not uh, an alien race from Marvel Comics. <laughs> oh, I'm one of those too, but my grandfather had to pretend to be white. We're just, we're a, we're a whole thing. <laughs> Everybody had to pretend to be an English-speaking white person from my grandfather onward. We assimilated so hard that I turned blonde. <laughs> mm. 
you have the bluest eyes, which, considering your ancestries, is just determinative of your will to survive. <laughs> I need a, go- a job, goddammit. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, last but not least, uh, we have the Quebecois. For this episode, we will be focusing exclusively on the Quebecois, outside of mean jokes about the Acadians' food. <laughs> we can't really pick on the Métis. They had the Red River Rebellion. They had Louis Riel. Things went yeah. horribly sideways. <laughs> I'm, I'm not yeah. that type of uh, Métis. I'm just... We ran out of other Acadians because everyone got deported and the Mi'kmaq sure are attractive. <laughs> <laughs> They're almost symmetrical in comparison. <laughs> With the level of inbreeding going on in the in the French Canadian population, I was gonna say Mi'kmaq people are much more attractive than Acadian people. The only reason that any of us have the correct number of toes is because we interbred with the uh, with the Mi'kmaq for a hundred years. <laughs> New France was a vast North American colony spanning most of the way from the modern Canadian province of Newfoundland to the modern American state of Louisiana. For all of that, it was far less populous than the 13 British colonies, consisting primarily of sparse trading posts and trapping routes for the greater span of its territory. During the Seven's Year War, a vast global conflict between European powers over the balance of power within Europe and their various colonial possessions, British forces in North America landed several key victories against French forces in Canada, including capturing the city of Quebec in September 1759. American listeners will most likely know this as this conflict as the French and Indian War because they don't give a shit about Europe. (laughs) Uh, France, what is that? France later ceded all of its Canadian possessions to the British in the 1763 Treaty of Paris, including Quebec, preferring to maintain ownership of other, more profitable colonies in the Caribbean, in particular Guadeloupe. (laughs) This is funny because my, uh, my boyfriend is from France, and when I asked him to give his understanding of what the um, history of France in Canada is, he was under the impression that France just got tired of Canada and then gave it to the British. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the version he was taught in French public schools. He was not aware that there was like several years of losing a war before this happened. He just, oh, he just thought that boy. they sold it, like at a yard sale for countries. <laughs> Oh, no, that was just Louisiana. <laughs> I was like, really, you, you think that you gave up all of Canada because it was just too much work, like a puppy you adopted and then it got too big. That's that's what you think. <laughs> uh, there is, like, this really fun Voltaire quote that's just, like, really dismissive, and it's just like, oh, yeah, just just a few acres of snow. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Doof. Get fucked, Voltaire. You're just a couple pretentious quotes. We can- two can tango. And once a year, I just take a copy of Candide, and I just flush it down the toilet. I have... Just- just- just on principle. Your landlord is crying. As we speak. <laughs> <laughs> I- I have no doubt that once a year, you just ruin the pipes in your building to make a strange ideological <laughs> statement that no one understands. I- I fully believe that. Ah, uh, takes- takes them weeks to fix the plumbing. <laughs> they gotta evacuate the third floor. <laughs> they- as- and as I'm walking out, covered in sewage water, I'm just- I'm just screaming about those secular bastards who left us here. <laughs> Why write an essay? as a response to the ideas of Voltaire when you can just stomp around Vancouver screaming and covered in bilge. 
<laughs> the two are intellectually equivalent. But in, in your boyfriend's defense, the British took on Canada primarily as a way of ensuring a quick close to peace negotiations and solidifying their position in North America, uh, rather than because Canada itself was any kind of economic or strategic prize. <laughs> the European uh, educational system is a bit like a mirror image of the American one, where they don't give a shit about North America. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I asked him about the fate of African colonies and the only thing he said was ooh <laughs> so I take it they have a bit more uh, honesty as far as those ones are concerned the British were initially accommodating to their new Franco-Canadian subjects allowing French civil law to remain in place even as British criminal law took over and softening legal restrictions on Catholics holding paid government positions known as the Irish model Re reinterpreting papist to mean only Catholic convicts who refused to submit to Anglican authority. As French Canadians were overwhelmingly Catholic, this was a necessary nuance for the basic functioning of the colony. Hey, look, I was right. We can hate multiple types of Catholics. We literally just edit the Irish discrimination laws a little bit to add the French in there. I was, I was kidding, but it turns out that I'm right. I like it when that happens. <laughs> it happens a lot on this podcast. Insofar as you predict the British being shitty to the Irish, that is, that is the favorite for the race. All in all, the French Canadians had far, had far from the worst position coming out of the end of the conflict. That honor, of course, goes to the various indigenous groups of North America, who rapidly lost strategic value as allies now that the British no longer had any equally powerful competition in the region. Ooh. That, that's also a really good bet. No matter what happens, it probably fucked over the natives. I don't want to create spoiler alerts, but I've, I've lived in modern Canada. I know how this turns out for the natives. Through the following 200 years, the British colonial authority and its successor, the Government of Canada, nonetheless treated its Anglophone citizens with a fair deal of favoritism, often adopting an assimilationist posture towards Francophones and Catholics and pursuing policies that created a structural advantage for the cultural and economic interests of English-speaking Anglicans and Protestants, especially as the size of the Anglophone population began to gradually eclipse that of the established Francophone community. This profound cultural mismatch and steady progress of dispossession and marginalization is at the heart of one of Canada's most profound and enduring political tensions, which has at several points throughout history sparked into violence, including a pair of armed uprising by Francophone militants in 1837 and 1838 that left over 300 dead. Yeah, it's weird that more people don't understand that, like, Canada's history is not a long history of peaceful coexistence between the French and the English. Yeah, we don't just all stand around watching the Northern Lights holding hands and singing Kumbaya. We've killed each other. There's there's probably a Francophone parent in New Brunswick right now setting fire to an Anglo school bus. <laughs> like, this this isn't even over. They're, they're still fighting about it. <laughs> no, like, this is still a live tension, even though it has absolutely de-escalated over the last several decades. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my American friends are under the assumption that all Canadians speak both English and French, but in reality, not a huge portion of the country is bilingual. Uh, the country is mostly made up of English speakers, who would be perfectly content to see Quebec wiped off the map, and Québécois, who sneer when they speak English. That's English and French communities are often referred to as the two solitudes, because the two communities 
throughout much of their history have rarely integrated or interacted even while existing within the same public spaces. Like, it's perfectly plausible, and I have many friends who have simply lived their entire lives in Montreal without ever learning French. My uncle lived in Montreal for nine years and didn't learn a word of French. He did learn to drive the wrong way down one-way streets. That was something that uh, <laughs> Montrealers will teach you real quick. Oh, it's a vital skill. But I mean, I'm from Moncton, New Brunswick, which is another bilingual, theoretically bilingual city, except that uh, all the French speakers, who are the majority and also the lower socioeconomic caste, live in a suburb called Dieppe, and the English speakers all live together in a rich suburb called Riverview, and they don't interact. They're like, they treat each other like two separate species. They have different hospitals that are down the street from one another that do not interact. There's separate school boards. Separate but equal is the status quo for languages in New Brunswick right now, and people are big mad. That's my analysis of the fact that, like, New Brunswick is constantly teetering on the brink of an incredibly broke civil war. It's just big mad. By 1960, the beginning of our story, a small Anglophone minority within the predominantly Francophone province of Quebec controlled a disproportionate amount of the province's wealth. English was the dominant language of business and the workplace, and the average Franco-Canadian man made a yearly income approximately half that of his English-Canadian counterpart. In terms of median income by ethnic group, French Canadians rank third last in Quebec, only above Italians and indigenous Canadians. And the other thing is, I feel like Americans often underestimate the extent to which French Canadians are an ethnic group and not just a language minority. It's a separate culture, separate food, separate everything. I mean, the reason that I don't speak French is actually because French, the language, the culture... It all became associated with being lower class, with being uneducated, with being uh, a manual laborer. All that, all that stuff was associated with French speakers. And so to escape the stigma, my grandfather, who didn't learn English until his 20s so that he could marry an Anglo woman, my grandmother, he didn't want any of his children to learn French because he didn't want them to have an accent. My, my family assimilated into Anglophone culture in my father's generation. And one of the large reasons why all of his siblings switched to English was economic opportunity. Uh, The reason why I am one of the few of my generation who speaks any French within my family is simply a personal, eccentric interest in the topic. That's just it. My my father's name is Jean-Paul. He comes from 400 years of French Acadians, but he went by the name Paul and he wasn't taught French because... Having a French accent could disadvantage you and jobs. People wouldn't hire you for certain things. People looked down on you. It was the reason that Quebec is the way it is is because they had to take some fairly extreme measures to preserve their language because there was a point when French in Canada was on its way out. A lot of modern Quebecois issues and like the sort of prickliness around these sort of draconian French language protection laws comes from a very real place of cultural assimilation and fear. I mean, as Acadians, we never had to worry that our food would die out because it's literally just sugar. Deep-fried sugar-coated fat. (laughs) It's just basically whatever fat and sugar we can put in a pie shell. That's Acadian culture. That was never going anywhere. Like, sugar pie. Sugar pie and meat pie were were pretty firmly cemented. You you can't... You might think that... 
sugar pie is a joke. It is not. No, it's not. It's just <laughs> it's brown sugar and butter, and then you turn it into syrup and you pour it in a pie. That's that's pretty much it. It's amazing that my people survived this long and didn't die of dental infections. Like the fact that any Acadian has teeth is a miracle in of itself, and it speaks of the hearty nature of your people. <laughs> if you if you savor it, the pie tastes like a dentist appointment. The English couldn't get rid of us, and the cavities won't either. <laughs> Meat pie, which no Acadian will tell you the ingredients to because you don't want to know, uh, that just tastes like a cardiology appointment. It's delicious. Eat your goddamn tortilla and shut up. A Canadian pie crust is 90% lard. <laughs> yeah, get that goddamn shortening out of my face. I am Acadian. If, it, if it's not still mooing, I don't want it. If you cannot smell bacon when you eat blueberry pie, it's not made right. <laughs> <laughs> All of our desserts smell like pork and fear. While in the modern day, Quebec is seen as a highly modern cosmopolitan province with a fairly robust European-style social welfare system, Quebec actually lagged significantly behind the majority Anglophone province of Ontario in terms of both social and economic development for most of its history. This is in part due to the relative economic marginalization of Francophones, and in part due to the strain of living as a cultural, religious, and ethnic minority surrounded on all sides and under constant threat of assimilation, which created a strong resistance to cultural changes that could be seen as English or secular influences, wearing away at the traditional core of Quebecois identity. For instance, while black and white women obtained the full right to vote between uh, 1916 and 1918 throughout the rest of Canada, Quebec waited until 1940 to do the same. <laughs> At some point, that it's late. It's just stubbornness. At a certain point, you're not fashionably late. You're showing up after the party. <laughs> I mean, oh. one thing that Quebec was ahead on, though, was seatbelt laws. You had to wear a seatbelt in True. Quebec in the mid-70s. Most of Canada didn't catch up till the mid-80s. So my father grew up on uh, in northern New Brunswick, right across the bridge from Quebec. And there's an enormous sign when you cross that bridge. This is basically like, reminder, you're changing time zones and also put on your goddamn seatbelt. They were an hour behind in time zone and like 10 years ahead in auto safety. And before anyone asks, Asian Canadians got the vote in 1948 after World War II. Uh, Inuit people from the Canadian Arctic got the vote in 1950, and the Canadian government stopped making indigenous people but choose between the vote and giving up treaty status in 1960. We don't get nearly enough shit for that as a country. I can't really explain treaty status here, but basically Canada signed a bunch of treaties with indigenous people and then told them if they wanted to have the same civil rights afforded to non-indigenous citizens, then they needed to forfeit all right to the promises made in the treaties. Uh, we stopped doing that around the same time as we were busy stealing all their children. Uh, look up the 60 scoop if you want all your idealized notions about Canada as a country shattered. <laughs> I was gonna say, you just condensed, like, a lot of racism into 30 seconds. That's That could be a podcast topic unto itself. Honestly, I, I don't know if we'll ever cover the 60s scoop. Because I'm pretty sure it would just be four hours of Janelle ranting directly into microphone as I weep softly in the background. <laughs> you know me so well. The credits, instead of like having a fun pop song, it would just be Janelle going like, ah! <laughs> just for three minutes straight. Listen, I do social work in the South Bronx for a living. I can only handle so much. <laughs> if you make me talk about Canada's history with its native people, I will come psychologically unglued in real time. 
So the key period of transition between the old traditional Quebec and the new modern Quebec began in 1960, as the newly elected provincial government enacted sweeping reforms under the leadership of Liberal Premier Jean Lesage. And that is capital L liberal, as in his political party. It's an important distinction in Canada. It means he's a, he's a center moderate. Like, when people are, like, in the U.S. are like, oh, they have this new liberal prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Adorable. I always get the vague impression they don't know what that means. <laughs> I mean, by American standards, it's just flaming communism. Yeah, because by American standards, the conservative party would be the Democrats. <laughs> and not, like, the right-wing ones. <laughs> <laughs> they see Justin Trudeau give a speech about how Canada's just more or less going to stay exactly as it is, and all they see is Che Guevara setting an oil pipe on fire. Uh, the reforms of the Quebecois liberals included the secularization and modernization of social services such as education and healthcare, which ha had until that point been largely administered by the Catholic Church. The power grid was consolidated and nationalized, public sector workers gained the right to strike and unionize, and the Quebecois social, so social welfare system expanded significantly all in the space of the next six years. Uh, that uh, until the Lesage government was defeated in 1966, despite having a seven-point lead over their opponents in the popular vote because their support was concentrated overwhelmingly in urban writings and winner-take-all electoral systems are stupid and undemocratic. I was going to say, peop there's people in rural Quebec right now who would stab somebody to return to the control of the Pope. The basic philosophy of these reforms was the idea that internally driven change could create a modern Quebec without losing its traditional French-Canadian identity. Lesage and his, gov his party campaigned under the slogan Maître Chez Nous, Masters in Our Own House. At the same time, there was a significant realignment of provincial politics into federalist and sovereignist factions, those who believed in creating a strong Quebec that could advocate for its needs and interests within Canada, and those who believed that Franco-Canadian interests and identity could only thrive through an autonomous Quebec, outside the power structure that held them subordinate to English Canada. This period of social, political, and economic change became known as La Révolution Tranquille, generally rendered in English as the Quiet Revolution. I will note, however, that as translations go, this is a tad misleading. Tranquille can mean quiet, but it can also mean peaceful, which is far closer to how the Quebecois themselves view the era. A peaceful revolution where the face of society transformed dramatically without the need for violence. It was a revolution with no guillotining. They had no idea what else to call it. For all that the Revolution Tranquille and the Lesage government were able to accomplish, a truly autonomous, independent Quebec was outside of the scope of their ambitions, much to the frustration of separatist-leaning members of the government itself. The progressive, future-oriented nationalism of this new era had sparked a desire to see Quebec thrive as its own nation. On the international stage, this was an era, likewise, of immense political upheaval and the steady unraveling of centuries-old empire, as well as an embrace of violence as a legitimate tool of social change among the radical intellectual left as exemplified by anti-colonial writers such as Franz Fanon and his book, The Wretched of the Earth. On the jagged edge of Quebec's own intellectual left, young men saw colonies throughout Asia and Africa throw off the yoke of their imperial oppressors one by one, and the rapid success of communist revolutionaries such as the leaders of the Cuban Revolution, and they dreamed of more. <laughs> Let's totally maroon New Brunswick. That's what we dream of. 
Yeah, unfortunately, Quebec is in a very awkward position. It's in the in middle. Terms of <laughs> right in the center. <laughs> like, there's, it's not the easternmost part of, there's a whole part of Canada. There's four provinces stuck to the side of it. Well, my, my parents were living in eastern Canada during the referendum, and they voted for it to fail. Just because they're like, we don't want to cross two borders every time we need to visit Grandma in Winnipeg. Also, that's where we keep most of our weapons. <laughs> that's where most of our armories are. <laughs> it's like when Scotland was threatening to se- like threatening to separate, and like Britain suddenly realized they put all of their nukes there. <laughs> and like, like why do so many countries with strong separatist factions just go like, I know where to put this. <laughs> <laughs> On top of all the people who hate me and want to leave. <laughs> it's it's like it's like when you if you know that your wife is packing her bags and you just fill them with all of your most important documents. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, honey. Take my birth certificate. You can't leave me. My driver's license is in there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were probably like, fuck Quebec, two-thirds of it is like, uninhabitable Canadian shield, what could be important? And then they're like, ah yes, a third of the population and economy. Right. Whoops. <laughs> and like, half, right. half the military. Okay. Oh no. Good stuff. Oh shit. On November 19th, 1962, during a parliamentary committee, social credit MP Gilles Grégoire confronted the president of the Canadian National Railway, Donald Gordon, about why there wasn't a single francophone represented among his 17 vice presidents and 10 directors, to which Gordon responded that hiring and promotions were based on merit and merit alone. Ooh. The Rassemblement pour l'Indépendance Nationale, or RIN, responded with a protest in Duville Square, uh, where they burnt the Red Ensign, precursor to the modern Canadian flag, hung an effigy of Gordon, and burnt that too. <laughs> uh, as pointed out contemporaneously by André Laurendeau, editor of the Québécois pap- newspaper Le Devoir, while it was indeed the case that 13% of the CNR's upper management was French-Canadian, despite French-Canadians composing around a third of the Canadian population, only 12% of upper administrative roles in the federal civil service were held by French-Canadians overall. Gordon and the CNR were far from unusual. My, uh, uh, my French-speaking grandfather, who banished French from our family lineage forever, worked for CNR. And he never made management. And then my father followed in his footsteps as an English-speaking man with an English name, and he, too, never made management. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Almost. Close, Grandpa Como. Mm, he got moved to Edmonton, which feels like both a promotion and a demotion. The logic that Gordon was only being as much of an asshole as everybody else apparently did not sway the Quebecois public. Surprising. (laughs) As on the afternoon of December 11th, over a thousand student demonstrators descended on the CNR's Montreal headquarters, where they lowered the red ensign and ran a dummy with a pig's head labeled Donald Gordon up the flagpole instead. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Was unable to figure out if it was a literal pig's head or just a facsimile of a pig's head. Damn it, that was my next question. Uh, apparently realizing that they had forgotten something, uh, they then once more lowered the effigy, doused it in kerosene, set it alight, strung it up once more, and danced below as it burned. 
And that is the strongest anyone has ever felt about Canadian Railway. A Canadian train literally exploded and wiped a third of a Quebec town off the map, taking dozens of people with it, and they still didn't burn effigies. Uh, By the way, Americans... Uh, One of the reasons why the Obama administration was trying to update railway standards was so that we didn't immolate any more of the Quebecois. And we're still kind of annoyed that you didn't follow through. (laughs) Don't let a train conductor work a 16-hour shift and then leave a train unattended with the parking break off. We learned a lot from that episode. We learned a lot of lessons we shouldn't have had to been told, but we we did learn them. (laughs) True. On February 23rd, 1963, a Molotov cocktail went through the window of an English-language radio station in Montreal, for which the Réseau de Résistance du Québécois claimed responsibility. That same month saw the foundation of the Front de Libération du Québec by three radical separatists who had met through the RR. Raymond Villeneuve, 19, Gabriel Houdin, 20, and vitally, Georges Schutter. 33, who had immigrated to Canada in 1951 from Belgium, where he had worked as a courier for the resistance during World War II. So, like, the most devastating Canadian terrorist organization in history was started by a creepy Belgian dude who wanted to hang out with teenagers. You're listing their ages because the last person's gonna be way too old to be there. Sure enough. Yeah, you know, I you know, I keep getting older, and my fellow terrorists, they just stay the same age. <laughs> Why do you think Belgians sound like Jean Chrétien? I can't do a Belgian accent. <laughs> I, I could hear that. Vividly. <laughs> <laughs> I still think it was an excellent reference. Can you, you are French, and you can't do any accents that aren't Jean Chrétien. Who is uh, a Quebecois man with a very paralyzed face. <laughs> Aw, he's doing his best. Actually, I think he's probably just punching a piece of raw meat right now, as we speak. <laughs> he might be he might be posing for photos strangling people, because that's a thing he does. <laughs> I think it's one in the morning in Quebec right now. He's probably, like, out swimming shirtless in a river with a bottle of wine in hand. It is early 80s. <laughs> He was known as the little guy from Shawinigan, le petit gars de Shawinigan. He's six foot tall, and he literally put a protester in a chokehold and slammed him into the ground. The dude broke a tooth. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to fall back on ugly stereotypes that the Quebecois are violent, undereducated brutes. But come on, guys, come on. I, he was our prime minister for all of the nineties. <laughs> You know, the, the U.S. president has a team full of elite trained guards ready to take a bullet. The Canadian prime minister just has street smarts and a willingness to play dirty. We just elect the largest person who runs and hope for the best. We, like, we don't have enough money to pay for competent defense. You're going to have to be able to hold your own in a fist fight. <laughs> You think Canadians are so nice. We just make the meanest among us. Just the true, like, one-eyed former fight ring pit bulls of Canadians. We make them run for elected office. Yeah, <laughs> Justin Trudeau didn't get it on his pretty face or his family name. He got in on the boxing career. Yeah, we were, we were initially leery about the fact that his face is not riddled with scars and broken bones. But 
His left hook won us over. (laughs) Schutter attended the University of Montreal, where he likewise acted as a recruiter and left-wing activist. In the late 1950s, he traveled to Algeria and trained under the Front de Libération Nationale, you might notice that's a very similar name. Oh. The Algerian Nationalist Political Party that was then locked in open conflict against French colonizers for Algerian independence. Schutter likewise visited communist-controlled Cuba twice as a guest of the Cuban government, as did many young Canadians. Yeah, we've been tight with Cuba forever. We could, we could always just show up. I, I actually went there on holiday when I was 12. Oh, very exciting. It was, there was a lot of guns. Everyone I've ever known who went there prior to them opening the border to Americans said, that, yeah, uh, lots of guns, very, very bad food. They made cakes that had no sugar in them. Like, it was very clear that, like, the cooks had seen a picture of a cake, but had never actually eaten one themselves. <laughs> Over the next several years, the FLQ would absorb many other similar radical separatist groups. The FLQ kept no membership list and was never, strictly speaking, a concrete organization, but rather a loose network of disconnected cells with shared goals and methods, making them harder for law enforcement to locate and infiltrate, as members only knew the identities of those within their own cell. It's like that Japanese Katamari game where you roll a ball around and it just picks up random junk. Na 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 And there's just like a little a little separatist gets like stuck in the ball and they're like That's how I'm picturing the rise of pro Quebec violence in the nineteen sixties. Just that little green dude running around balling up garbage. And then they like they plant it next to uh next to an armory until it explodes. Yeah, you just run over a group of disgruntled Haitians and then you run over another group of disgruntled francophones, you know. The various cells practiced propaganda by deed, a strategy of committing public acts which they then expected the other cells to imitate from what they saw in the media. Oh, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> it's like terrorism telephone. Supporters and sympathizers of the FLQ were known as felkist, which sounds like a polite euphemism for enthusiasts of the kind of depraved sex act the Marquis de Sade would have enjoyed on a lazy Sunday afternoon. Why did you write that line? Um, because I wanted to make a joke about a very specific sex act the name reminded me of, but I also didn't want to accidentally have people Google it. Because you should retain your innocence. (laughs) You're telling me to retain my innocence from a sex act? I feel like any day now I'm gonna have to sit you down and explain that when mommy loves daddy very much, but she's on her period, sometimes... (laughs) (laughs) Mommy's... Oh, well, you've just been much grosser than I I was trying to shield people from. (laughs) I was just referring to felching. (laughs) (laughs) Which so you don't actually Google without the safe search on, is when you manually suck uh, ejaculate out of an anus. That's way grosser. I was going with, uh, I was going with placating your boyfriend with period blowjobs. You, you made it worse. Oh, well. What a- That's not what I thought you were implying. What on earth did you think I was implying? I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> Whatever it was, I'm- I'm not gonna say I'm it. I'm sure it's illegal in all ten provinces and fifty states. <laughs> If you're escalating from sucking cum out of an anus, I don't- I don't even know <laughs> where there is to go. Like a Twinkie! No! <laughs> oh, no. Oh, is that why they call them Twinks? Oh, my- oh, no, 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 no,
with white liquid? I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm not. I'm not familiar with the culture. I'm just. I'm gonna start a PO box for this podcast, and it's just gonna be so that people can mail us pamphlets from the separate convents that we're going to be put into. <laughs> I feel like the only way that I can possibly make up for even hearing you say this is like 40 years of contemplating God. I mean, there's also a therapeutic lobotomy, but those went out of style <laughs> quite a while Somebody back. get me an ice pick. Jessica's talking about cum again. <laughs> <laughs> people I respect listen to this now and I don't know how to feel <laughs> shortly after the founding of the FLQ the bombings began in earnest March 8th was the firebombing of three military barracks in Montreal an amateurish affair again involving Molotov cocktails that only managed to break a single window and scorch a wall the, the FLQ sent mimeographed leaflets to newspaper and radio and television stations throughout the city that displayed a crude crayon drawing of the Separatist resistance flag and an inscription that declared that suicide commandos of the Quebec Liberation Front have as their mission to completely destroy, by systematic sabotage, symbols of the federal government, especially the military and Royal Canadian Mounted Police, English language media, English first businesses and those using English signage, and businesses and factories that discriminated against francophone workers. God, I just like that you described it as an amateurish bombing because it just reeks of the fact that, like, the one thing that has survived the transition from France to Canada is, like, a smug sense of superiority, even when we're getting shit on by the rest of the country. I'm just picturing some French person in a... This isn't even the right French stereotype, but just some French person with a cigarette and a holder and a beret examining the wreckage of this bombed-out building, being like, Is that the best you can do? This is a dilettante bombing effort at best. I have seen better explosion when I come inside your mother. I'm gonna be single when my boyfriend finds out that that's what I think he sounds like. I'm gonna get broken up with by an angry Frenchman, and I'm gonna deserve it. The morning of April 1st, Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker was scheduled to travel from Montreal to Quebec City via the main CNR line along the St. Lawrence River. Uh, or St. Lawrence River, depending on how your feelings about the situation. <laughs> I was just gonna say, ooh, you're feeling particularly French this evening. So the FLQ sabotaged a section of the rail in the small village of Lemieux, 100 kilometers southwest of Quebec using five sticks of dynamite. The detonation managed to slice off a meter-long section of track, but despite what rumors you may have heard about laying a penny on a train track, that is nowhere near enough to derail a heavy, responsibly driven train. No, trains are large. They're quite big. <laughs> they have their They're own momentum. <laughs> and, and at around 3.30 a.m., CN Freight Train 423 passed through Lemieux with no more incident than the engineer calling in an oddly bumpy bit of track. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, my father, my father worked for CN for 37 years. He was on a train once that hit a semi full on, and he didn't even know that they'd hit something. He literally, he was in the back of the train and radioed the front to ask why they're stopping. And they're like, we just obliterated a semi-truck. You're going to see chunks uh, start to pass by on the ground. And he was like, oh, so we did. Look at that. It's Yeah, the, the, the myth that if you put a penny on the, the railroad track that it'll derail is hilariously false. You shouldn't do it because you might die. 
But, like, the train will be fine. <laughs> uh, trains hit wildlife all the time in Canada. Large mammals and livestock. You ever want to turn a cow into a milkshake? All you need is a, <laughs> a CN train. Yeah, you know, like, those that, that, that triangular bit at the bottom front of a train? That's called the cow catcher. And they catch cows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't catch the cow, it just keeps them from having to hose the wheels down when they get where they're going. <laughs> yeah, the shape of it is actually meant to bounce wildlife off of the tracks, <laughs> rather than running straight I, over I them. mean, they do, they're not in a complete piece when they hit the ground. I don't- yeah. <laughs> in no way does a cow survive an encounter with a freight train. No. But they usually don't end up as a meat smoothie, at go like all the way through the wheels. <laughs> no, they just get chucked into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> the metal image is too much. <laughs> Good. I do like the fact though that an act of terrorist terrorism is like blowing up a piece of railroad track. That sounds like. 1830s terrorism. This is like 1960. Right. Like, man's going to the moon and we have color television and they're still like, ha oh, ha ha ha, we will blow up the railroad track. I mean, that's, spoiler alert, literally the tactic they use in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, the only historical reference I trust. <laughs> uh, and, and the actual reason why, why, why you shouldn't get anywhere near a railroad track, like, Literally, one of the reasons given to me when I was in Grand Prairie taking driving school, um, it's traumatic for the train drivers when they hit people. No, that's 100% true. That is actually 100% true. They get PTSD. They do, actually. They do. It, it, it creates an enormous amount of uh, headache for CN because you can't let somebody who's having, like, train flashbacks drive a train. No, my father... Every time my dad would have to come home from dealing with something horrendous, some person becoming a mist, he would, like, regale me with horrible stories about, like, train-related deaths and maimings in an effort to tell me to stay off of train tracks. And the reason he gave was never my personal safety. It was always, it's very traumatic to have to get off a train and go look for a body. Like, <laughs> thanks, dad. I'm sorry. Your co-workers will be inconvenienced by my lifeless nine-year-old corpse. Because <laughs> part of the problem, part of the problem for, for these, these, these drivers is it takes so long to stop. So it takes a mile to stop a train. It takes a mile to stop a train. So you can start stopping and just watch for a full minute as you hit somebody. <laughs> My, yeah, because they can blow their horn all they want, but they can't actually stop in time to not hit you. And my father's favorite train safety story ever was that he had a... My, my father was a dispatcher. He wasn't usually on trains. He was usually in an office telling them to stop fucking around and get the fuck to Winnipeg. My dad was dispatching one night, and this guy reports like, So I'm about to hit a drunk idiot who's walking down the tracks so that my father could have a head start on phoning the coroner, which is one of his duties. I, sh I shit you not, one of my dad's duties was like, somebody call the Melville Saskatchewan coroner because we hit another idiot. So they called to say, like, there's this idiot who won't get off the train tracks and we're about to turn him into a raspberry smoothie. Please call the medical examiner to come get him. 
sure enough, the train goes over him, and the conductor stops the train, and then the conductors are pissed off, not only because they have to look at what happens when you turn a human being into a frosty, but because (laughs) they have to get out and walk a mile back to go look at whatever the fuck they've just hit. So they have to go on a hike where the prize is not scenery, it's the insides of a person. Um... (laughs) Not the most relaxing nature tour. No, this particular fellow, um, he goes over and the guy uh, is lying on the tracks as a dead person does. And he's on the radio with my father. And the guy, as he gets over, he's like, okay, we hit the guy. Like, here's the description. Here's where we are. Bring the medical examiner, you know, bring the, uh, the ambulance out here to come pick up the corpse. The guy jumps up off the train tracks, drunk as fuck. <laughs> he had fallen between the rails... And the train had gone straight over him, which is not something that I recommend trying. And he was like, dude, a train just went right over me. And apparently the man nearly shat himself on the spot. <laughs> so that's, that's my favorite CN-related story. But yeah, no, absolutely do not go near train tracks. Later that same morning, uh, a call came into the Montreal Police Department reporting that a bomb was about to detonate in the National Re- Revenue Building. In fact, the bomb had been pushed into an air vent near the side entrance of the building, where it had slid into the basement, hit a metal grate, and exploded, blowing a hole in the ceiling of the maintenance staff locker room. Well, that's inconvenience. Now the maintenance staff have nowhere to put their shoes. Yeah, you've just you've just blown up somebody's tea collections and and Cheryl's good mug. <laughs> and for our uh, international listeners, this is the equivalent of putting a bomb in the IRS building. The Canadian Revenue Agency is the Canadian Tax Collection Agency. At one point, my younger sister got the two confused, and she was talking about paying, like, filing her income taxes, and she said, I don't want to get taken out by the IRA. (laughs) (laughs) The Irish terrorists? Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) I, I think you're safe. I'm pretty sure... Here in rural Alberta, you are safe from the Irish Republican Army. (laughs) As long as you're not patrolling the border of Northern Ireland, I think you're going to be okay. (laughs) April 6th, around 2pm, a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation technician discovered a suspicious package at the base of the Radio Canada transmission tower on Mount Royal, alongside red graffiti reading Liberté and FLQ, and called it in. The package was, in fact, 24 sticks of dynamite rigged to explode at 5 p.m., intended to take out the tower, which ran radio communications for the local and provincial police, the fire department, the provincial transport department, as well as public and civilian radio and television broadcasts. (laughs) It wouldn't surprise me if, to this day, 90% of Canadian communications depended on a single poll. Honestly, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're a little we're we're ahead of you with electronic banking america we are decades behind in telecommunications yeah every, like literally every canadian you know has a phone bill over a hundred dollars <laughs> either that or they can't get cell service in some spots of their apartment <laughs> <laughs> like there's probably just a dead zone in their bathroom <laughs> April 12th, Good Friday, the RCMP and Montreal Police executed search warrants on on a dozen residences, detained and questioned 15 men, and seized a grenade, a revolver, several briefcases full of documents, and 10 typewriters in the hopes of matching matching fonts with the FLQ communiques. 
Mr. Average Superstore haul. A grenade, ten typewriters, and a firearm. <laughs> April 16th saw the distribution of the FLQ's first manifesto. A call to arms, to revolution, for the Quebecois to resist through violence the dominion of Anglo-Saxon capitalism, their status as a colonized nation, and gain their independence. This first manifesto was never broadcast. Well, damn it, if a, if a manifesto was written and it's not read on the news in the wake of a terrorist attack, did a manifesto ever really exist? If a man rants about the evils of capitalism in the woods, hasn't he already won? <laughs> Just stay there. Just shit in the woods and grow some vegetables. You'll be fine. There's no law in the woods. There's only bears. <laughs> <laughs> you are beyond the reach of the most determined corner store. <laughs> That's a depanier, you filthy Anglo. <laughs> ah, me we. The raids of April 12th provided no viable leads, but quite a bit of backlash in the form of several dozen protesters marching on a Montreal office of the RCMP and burning a red ensign on April 19th. Later that night, a stick of dynamite was thrown at the building, though it bounced off, landed in a flower bed, and blew, blew out the windows of the homes and offices across the street. It hardly seems like unfair search and seizure when they found grenades. Right? <laughs> At least one of those people was reasonably detained. <laughs> if they search your house and they find, like, explosives, I, I feel like you don't get to be mad. April 20th, 11.45pm, another bomb exploded. This time in a garbage bin in the alley behind the Canadian Forces Recruiting Center in Montreal, shattering windows as high as the top floor, five stories up as well as those of, a nearby, of nearby apartment buildings, and claiming the life of the night watchman, Aww. 65-year-old Wilfred O'Neill. O'Neill okay. had been a month away from retirement and a veteran of both world wars. The FLQ responded to the media condemnation of the incident with a communique claiming that O'Neill's death had been an accident, but that, unfortunately, no revolution takes place without bloodshed. I wasn't able to find the original French text, but the English translation refers to O'Neill's death simply as the accidental death of an English-speaking person, which has to be wrong. English-speaking person is too formal and stilted in tone compared to the rest of the text. At best, it said an anglophone, which should have been rendered as an English speaker. At worst, it said an anglo which in the political, Canadian political context often has a very negative connotation. I was going to say, we probably should have clarified this. It's been clear from our tone from the beginning, but in Canada, calling somebody an Anglo, if that person happens to be... If the person calling you an Anglo is of French descent, they're not being nice. That's a slur. <laughs> it's a, it, is, it is considered an anti-English slur. There's a reason we've been saying filthy Anglo. It's You don't have to say filthy, but it's heavily implied. Also, I mean, this is obviously, like, a very, very sad event. This is a, a tragedy. A man lost his life. I just do want to comment, though, on how Canadian it is that a lethal terrorist attack was carried out for the first time in modern Canadian history, and the group responsible immediately issues an apology. <laughs> <laughs> like, I couldn't even have made that up. That's... That would have sounded fake if we told that to you out of context. I also, I mean, it's incredible that, like, they target some of the most important buildings and infrastructure in Canada, and the one time that they commit a fatal attack is when they targeted a garbage can. 
They're bad at this. They hit the one target that was going to get everybody against them. They hit, like, the most sympathetic target they could have, like a two-time World War veteran a week from retirement. That's not how you rally people to a cause. <laughs> the, only, the only way it could have been worth if they had, like, accidentally murdered a baby with a Nobel Prize. I was gonna say, if they had, like, murdered a nun ushering a school full of blind orphans across the street? Like, what else? Is there anything else politically unpopular you'd like to bomb while you're at it? Like... Uh, there's a certain subtext of the message that the FLQ was dismissing the importance of O'Neill as a casualty because he was just an Anglophone. But ironically, despite his Irish last name, he absolutely had to have been French-Canadian because he was originally from the small town of Gaspé, which is 90% Francophone. His mother's maiden name was Duguay, and his widow was Levesque. <laughs> I was going to say, today the Gaspés speak a French that sounds like it was, you know, run through an orc translator, but uh, it is still technically French. The city is known as the cradle of French North America. It's very French. When all of Canada hates you and the Irish, sometimes the Irish start looking real good. That's... Yeah, sometimes romance blooms. <laughs> well, that's the only other ethnic group that doesn't hate you. Sometimes a, a mommy and a daddy get oppressed by the English very much. <laughs> and uh, the Pope approves, but no one else does. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's, there are a lot of French people in Canada that have Irish names. Because when everyone around you is your cousin or a Protestant or a Catholic Irish, you're, you're out of options. My, my grandfather's name was Como. My grandmother's name was Mahoney. It's... Uh, <laughs> The enemy of my enemy is my fuck buddy. Like, there's... <laughs> and my new wife. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of ginger Frenchmen running around Canada. May 3rd saw one bomb planted beneath the front steps of a Royal Canadian Legion Hall in the small town of Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu. Then you're just targeting veterans. That's just where old veterans hang out. <laughs> it's like a social club for veterans. Yeah, it's other other veterans who don't ask questions when you just sit quietly with a thousand-yard stare for three minutes and then pop back to what you were doing. It is essentially one step up from bombing an orphanage. It's not- I- ooh. As, even as- even with, as far as terrorism targets go, that's low. That's really it low. really low. You, like, you are limboing in the ninth circle of hell. <laughs> It, it's not something that seems like it would get anybody over to your cause. It just makes you look like an asshole who targets the elderly. Elderly veterans in a time when these would have been World War II veterans. This is, this is veterans of a popular war. This is World War I vets, too. Oh, God. Like, they're not a symbol of the oppressor. It is an old man's club. <laughs> yeah, it's one step up from targeting a hospital. Like, it's... Oh, was security at the nursing home too steep? Why this? Was the veterans hospital too well guarded? What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Luckily, the bomb exploded at 1.05 a.m., harming no one as everyone had gone home, including the staff. That afternoon, another bomb was found in a 14th floor washroom of the Montreal Provident Building, containing an office of the Solbeck Mining Company, currently in a dispute with its predominantly French-Canadian workforce. 
the building was evacuated and the bomb successfully disarmed at 3.28, two minutes before it was set to detonate. Oh, shit. Why isn't there, like, a Die Hard movie about this? That is some... God, why did I have to attend a musical of Louis Riel being hung? Why did we learn about this? It's so interesting. Like, this is, like, literally one of the most interesting parts of Canadian history, and we don't cover it very thoroughly. <laughs> it was glossed over. There was some terrorists. Eh, it's over now. That's, that was eh, this. Yada, yada, yada. Quebec was angry. Now, portage. <laughs> <laughs> I did learn a lot about walking around with a canoe on your head in high school. It's never come up. <laughs> I've had to portage a canoe once, which was also in high school. Yeah, like, it's entirely forced. <laughs> They're like, this shall be the foundation of our national identity. Hold this outdated riverboat. <laughs> Stick your head inside. There's been very little organic portaging in my day-to-day -day life. And for our international listeners, portaging is just a French-Canadian word for walking around with a canoe on your head because you ran out of river. Yeah, literally the only reason you would do it is if you were riding down a river, ran out of ability to go further in the direction you wanted to, and needed to cross over land to the next river. Yeah. This is not a modern skill. <laughs> no, you're a fur trader with places to be. Other than that, yeah, this doesn't come up very much. I have needed to snowshoe more than I have needed to portage a canoe. They try so hard to make us embrace our culture. It's just that I don't think they fully appreciate how much portage sucks as a culture. <laughs> I was gonna say how much I don't want to. I'd rather walk around with just a bucket on my face. It'd be more dignified. No matter how thoroughly you try to dry a canoe, you're still gonna get dripped on. May 10th at approximately 12.45 uh, a.m., a relatively powerful bomb went off in the alley behind the armory of the Black Watch, an infantry battalion of the Royal Regiment of Scotland. Little damage was done to the armory beyond a few shattered windows, but the bomb cracked the foundation on the other, on the, of the building on the other side of the alley and tore a three-foot hole in the wall. On the a night of May 13th, another bomb hit a Royal Air Force building, but only managed to cause a small hole in one wall. Now... It might seem like these attacks were all fairly crude and generally ineffective, which they were, but that is in part because the FLQ were specifically hitting very hard targets. I was gonna say, so far it seems like they're just trying to drum up business for French contractors. This seems like a construction scam. The next target was very different. In the early morning of May 17th, the FLQ placed crude half-pound dynamite bombs in mailboxes throughout the wealthy Anglophone suburb of, suburb of Westmoreland, five of which exploded around three o'clock in the morning. The local police responded quickly, conducting a mass search of the municipality's 85 mailboxes and discovering six further explosive devices. The Royal Canadian Engineers, stationed nearby, were called in to deal with the situation. One of the Army bomb disposal technicians, Sergeant Major Walter Leia, Polish immigrant and World War II veteran, arrived at 10.45 a.m. and made quick work of disarming two bombs. The fact that you're giving me background information tells me that nothing good's about to happen. As he walked up to the third mailbox and reached in, the bomb inside exploded, severely maiming and nearly killing him. No. 
The remaining bombs were detonated on site successfully using a remote wire system by an employee of the Atlas Construction Company, Hermann Fried, a German immigrant who had worked as a bomb disposal technician for the uh, other side of the conflict in World War II. I mean, that's one way to get experience. Immigrants, getting things done. Also, I always assume it, like, exploded on site. Detonated on site is a euphemism for we threw rocks at it from a distance until it went off. Yeah, they, uh, they very carefully placed two more sticks of dynamite uh, attached to a wire next to the bombs and then retreated to a safe distance. (laughs) We're just going to put in more dynamite to solve our dynamite problem. (laughs) All right. Okay. It's one way of going about it. The last bomb was detonated at 7.30 p.m. And part of the mailbox landed on a lawn... 150 yards away. Holy shit. Yeah, because they added two more sticks of dynamite. Oh, yeah. Like, this is already a lot of dynamite. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... If you, like, spill a bit of red wine on your shirt, so you decide to just pour the rest of the bottle over your head. You're just like, it's a red shirt now. (laughs) Yeah, like, I, I mean, I guess you achieved something, but it seems excessive the way you went about it. Leia's left hand was amputated, and his, his right side left permanently paralyzed. Mm. In 1965, he was moved to a veteran's hospital in Saint-Anne-de-Bellevue, where he remained until his death in 1993. Mm. He deserved better. In response to the early 1963 attacks, the government increased surveillance on federal buildings, and the MPD directed greater resources to the FLQ case, as well as street patrols. Public anxiety was high, with many speculating that the bombings might be the work of Algerian immigrants, or Cuban-trained communists, or a false flag attack orchestrated by English Canadians pretending to be separatists. Oh, it's fun how we were afraid of different people then than we are now. Two days later was May 19th, the eve of Victoria Day, which is a holiday peculiar to Canada, (laughs) a celebration of both the birthday of Queen Victoria and the life of the current reigning monarch. Not even Brit- the British celebrate Queen Victoria's oh, birthday. <laughs> because they don't understand Queen Vicky like we do. Queen Victoria, great and noble, beautiful as she is wise. <laughs> Stop trying to have sex with queens, Jessica. <laughs> oh, England has always done better. Under a strong, feminine hand. (laughs) She's been dead for almost a hundred years. Put it back in your pants. We have been at our greatest under all the noble queens of this nation. You just sound like Winston Churchill delivering a speech about how bad he wants to fuck Victoria. (laughs) And who wouldn't? She was a stone-cold fox. (laughs) This conversation is going to do things to me that can't be undone in any amount of therapy, so... She had back, Janelle. Queen had back. <laughs> she was fergalicious, as the kids would say. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you're attracted to a 300-pound woman with a goiter. <laughs> uh, one who was deeply in love with her long-dead husband till her own dying day. They did have an irresponsible number of children. I love a 
woman with loyalty. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad that you wanna you wanna tap in uh, when Albert needs a water break. I'm glad that that's <laughs> that that's a goal for you. Uh, take 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 a break, Bertie. I can handle this. Ugh. <laughs> <sighs> When you get arrested for making lewd comments at a Victoria Day celebration, I'm not posting bail. Uh, that's fair. Uh, I'm also right near Victoria, so like any day now, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hop on a ferry, and I'm just gonna be so excited. You can't hop a city, <laughs> Jessica. I can try. <laughs> oh. Don't talk me down from my dreams. It's ambition that got me this far. Don't make me your emergency contact. That's all I ask. <laughs> Don't worry. This is going straight to my mother, and she is going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Bolstered by their successes in their success in Westmont, members of the FLQ plan to bomb the bridge across the Ottawa River, leading leading from Hull, Quebec, to the Canadian capital. But the bombers got spooked when they were stopped by a pair of curious police officers. They returned instead to Montreal and, inst- and, and hit an armory of the Royal Canadian Engineers, placing dynamite under one of four cars belonging to the employees of the nearby uh, Gigi Joubert Derry, parked to the west of the building. They were like, one way or another, we're gonna fuck up an engineer's day. The bomb exploded at 9am the following morning destroying the cars, tearing the doors off the armory, bending the grates over the window, severing nearby power lines, and leaving a crater four feet across and two feet deep. Oh shit, they're getting better at this. The explosion likewise hurled chunks of masonry around 50 yards, which is nothing compared to the tire that flew a whole 150 yards away. Holy shit. The shockwave was so powerful, it shook houses as far as 500 yards away and nearly killed a man with a falling file flower pot. (laughs) Uh, uh, Not a dignified way to go, all things considered. (laughs) At best, undignified. He died in a terrorist attack. How? Oh, well, we had this lovely daisy. (laughs) (laughs) The petunias crushed his skull. I'm not sure that death by begonia was what the terrorists were going for, but all right. It's symbolism. Symbolism. It it would it would have been so much better if it had been a fleur de lis. (laughs) I was just gonna make that joke. Get out of my goddamn head. (laughs) That day, Premier Lesage held a 90-minute emergency cabinet meeting and delivered a province-wide TV address in the evening, declaring a 50 thousand dollar reward from the province on top of the ten thousand dollar reward already on offer by the city of montreal in return for information leading to the arrest of the bombers sixty thousand in total over five hundred ten thousand in modern terms not bad fair chunk of change pay off part of my student loan escape back into the warm womb of graduate school in response to details provided by an informant (laughs) an associate at the flq the police made 15 arrests from June 1st to 5th, 14 went men and one woman. Days passed without any release of names or charges being made. Instead of arraigning the suspects in front of a judge, the authorities held them as material witnesses to a coroner's investigation into the death of Wilfred O'Neill. This under the powers granted by the Quebec Coroner's Act, which for some reason included broad, almost unrestricted detention powers towards anyone the coroner believes might neglect or refuse to participate in an inquest 
with or without a warrant. <laughs> uh, I checked, and apparently the section in question was replaced in 1983. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and now requires evidence that the person has failed to participate in the inquest or probable cause to believe that they have violated some other condition. So that's something. So it took us until 1983 <laughs> to be like, yeah, maybe don't lock up the French without cause. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we should give French people about as much due process as we give to dogs we take to the pound, you know. <laughs> this was the year Return of the Jedi came out. And we were still like, should we have rights? Mmm, not too many rights. <laughs> just, just, we wanna, we wanna be sure. It's like the 1940s when we gave women suffrage all over again. <laughs> Some of the detained were denied access to legal counsel, and those who weren't were only permitted to meet with their lawyers in the presence of an officer, leading to widespread public outcry and vocal media criticism that the prisoners were being de denied their basic right to due process. On June 10th, the inquest opened with a heavy police presence in attendance. Immediately shocking was the age of the suspects, most of whom were under 21, then the age of majority in Canada. Elaine Bruyard, 18, a science student at the University of Montreal, recruited by Raymond Villeneuve, a childhood friend, had participated in the March 8th firebombings and stored 25 to 30 sticks of dynamite in his university locker. Yves Labonté, 18, alongside Jacques uh, Giraud, carried a bomb assembled by Gab Gabriel Houdon, which they were to place at the foot of the MacDonald Monument in Dominion Square on the instructions of Villeneuve. When they arrived, it turned out the square was too busy for them to place the bomb, so the two instead decided to target the, uh, the nearby Canadian Forces Recruitment Center. They then waited at a sandwich shop two blocks away for the explosion. When the bomb failed to go off when they had set it, 10pm, they hadn't wanted to touch it for fear of setting it off, and they instead went home. This was the bomb that exploded less than two hours later, killing Wilfred O'Neill. When asked the reason for his actions, Labonte replied, for kicks. Guy Desjardins, the Crown Prosecutor, then asked, Are you sure it wasn't for the FLQ, for separatism, independence, or anything like that? To which Labonte responded, No, just for kicks. Listen, dude, they're giving you an out. Please just say you had a political motive. Please just say... That you weren't some, just some dumb idiot planting bombs after school. Tiny psychopath. Labonte went further, saying that after the bombing, Villeneuve had told him, quote, It's not all that serious. It was only an Englishman. Giraud refused to testify, though an earlier police statement corroborated Labonte's account. Also extremely suspicious that there was an earlier police statement. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Considering they were not given due process. <laughs> they may be a bunch of young sociopathic French idiots, but they're young sociopathic French idiots with rights, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to see your priorities are in order. They may be terrorists, but the least they are owed is not to get beat with a telephone book by the MPD. <laughs> <laughs> there are terrorists, goddammit. <laughs> Good patriotic terrorism. <laughs> Oof. That's a statement Villeneuve... you just said into a microphone. 
Yeah, well, I also have control of the editing process. That's true. <laughs> you, on the other hand, you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> That's entirely true. Uh, Villeneuve and Udon likewise refused to testify. The inquest revealed that the province's lax outdated regulations for the storage of dynamite had allowed the FLQ to easily steal large amounts of explosives from poorly guarded construction sites, in particular excavation sites for the police city's planned subway expansion. <laughs> if your dynamite storage system is, I don't know, leave it at the construction sites, you don't really get to be surprised when a school child hoards it in a locker. Yeah, these thefts included at one point lowering a 10-year-old boy down into an excavation to grab the explosives, but were often just a matter of strolling into a poorly fenced construction site and finding one of the big red boxes marked EXPLOSIF. <laughs> and that is not a joke. <laughs> wow, I guess domestic terrorism is easier when you live in an Acme cartoon. When you're actual Looney Tune. My first thought when I was reading the specifications of the bomb was, how are they getting large amounts of stable, commercial-grade explosives? Like, how are they getting industrial-grade dynamite? <laughs> and, wow, was I not ready for the answer. <laughs> They're just gathering it like wildflowers, apparently. It's just... It's just left out, like... You know, it's like road cones. It's just something you're not really supposed to take, but everybody kind of does. <laughs> you and I were in very different social clubs in university. I mean, from our audience, not from each other. We were in the same social club and we stole the same the same road cones. <laughs> 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 the sixth witness was Georges Chater, who told the Crown, I'm weak, upset, and dirty. I've been in a cell for eight days, and I haven't been permitted to wash. Schitter was initially more forthcoming than the other two founders of the FLQ, even telling the prosecutor that he had stored around 300 sticks of dynamite in his living room. When asked about the presence of his two children in the home, he replied, They were quite safe. There was a lot of dynamite, but not detonator caps. What? How much dynamite is lying around that 300 sticks can go missing and it doesn't immediately cripple construction? That also upsets me. People don't even like, notice. How are you not tracking this much dynamite? <laughs> You're just leaving it in, like, crates on the street corner like it's a free newspaper. Just, alright, everybody take one. You should not have an honor system on taking explosives home. <laughs> Never mind leaving it unlocked. With children around. I mean, children can irrevocably maim themselves when left alone with a spoon for two minutes. Leaving them alone with 300 yeah. sticks of dynamite just seems like... Maybe you... You gotta, you gotta cut grapes lest they join the choir eternal. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, it just, it just kind of sounds like you regret having them at that point. Yeah, clearly you weren't too attached. <laughs> However, when asked about Udon's role and whether he had made the bombs in Shudder's presence, Shudder shut down and refused to answer. Quote, In the name of the FLQ and Quebec's independence, I regret that I am unable to testify any further. This led to cheers from some, from some members of the gallery who were then removed by police. Again, though, this is very polite obstruction of justice. Oh, extremely. 
Like, he's like, I must respectfully decline. <laughs> I may be, may be a terrorist, but I am no snitch, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very refined. I may be dirty. I may be abused. I may be a strange Belgian man who hangs out with teenagers, but I am no stool pigeon. <laughs> it's good to have priorities. 18-year-old Richard Dizier, another detainee, was likewise initially cooperative. But when asked by Crown Prosecutor Jean Bienvenu if he knew where they had gotten the dynamite, defense lawyer Raymond Doust interceded, informing Dizier that he did not have to answer the question. During a heated exchange between Coroner Trahan, Doust, and fellow defense attorney Guy Guérin, Crown Bienvenu interrupted and requested the coroner expel both defense counsel with police assistance if necessary. Incensed, both left, and Bizier refused to answer further questions without counsel present. Coroner Trahan declared the uncooperative witnesses in contempt of proceedings and sentenced them to a month of jail, including Bizier. At the end of Bizier's testimony, Bienvenu rose and declared, The Crown does not wish to establish a record for the number of persons cited for contempt of court at an inquest. We consider enough evidence has been, has been provided members of the jury so that they can render a verdict, to which Trahan agreed, ending the inquest. By this point, the police had made six further arrests, bringing the total to 21. The five-man jury deliberated for 35 minutes before returning a 4-1 verdict holding all 21 criminally responsible for the death of Wilfred O'Neill. Yeah, note that this is not the same as a criminal trial. They still haven't char been charged with anything. Inquest findings are generally admissible in court, but not a replacement thereof. I like that there's, like, one holdout who's like, mm, I don't know, listen, I'm sure there's a perfectly exp reasonable explanation for dozens of sticks of stolen dynamite. Let's, let's hear him out. I don't know, maybe the one holdout was just a guy going like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> You're not letting them have their lawyer? <laughs> okay, so it was- a, That was my response. It was a sane one, but alright. Like, maybe there's just, like, one dude just going like, Holy shit. <laughs> Defense counsel, of course, immediately applied to the Quebec Superior Court for an injunction, citing 33 separate grounds to halt proceedings. But the inquest likewise caused massive backlash and created sympathy for the young defendants among the general public. Two days later, four of the suspects had been released, as the Crown had found no grounds to detain them, and the other 17 were arraigned. It took two hours and 40 minutes to read the 165 charges, 90 of which were laid against Shudder, Houdon, Villeneuve, and Giraud alone. Do you know how bad you have to botch a trial before public sympathy goes to the side of the people who blew up an old man? You've done something terribly wrong. Do you know how bad you'd have had to botch a trial to make the public pro-Unabomber? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad! <laughs> Alongside Labonte, Shudder, Udon, Villeneuve, and Giraud were all charged with non-capital murder for the death of Wilfred O'Neill. Several of the suspects were released for on bail, four of whom, Gilles Pruneau, Mario Bachin, Pierre Schneider, and Roger Tetro, fled and failed to show up to court. Another, Bizier, also fled, attempting to claim political asylum after showing up on the French islands of Saint-Pierre and uh, Miquelon in the Gulf of Saint-Laurent, 
at which point he was promptly sent back to Montreal, lacking legitimate grounds for his claim. One, I really like how out of place the guy named Schneider must be in a pro-French <laughs> terrorist organization. But two, <laughs> trying to claim political asylum at St. Pierre and Miquelon, it's, it's, it's like trying to create a sovereign nation on a rock. There's just nothing there. Yeah, like, they're legally, they legally belong to France, but, like, that's not a real place. <laughs> no, it's like... How did you even get there? It's like arguing that your bathtub is international waters. Like, it's not... <laughs> that's not real. Yeah, I have shown up at, at Sealand, and I am declaring myself emperor. <laughs> cool, you still go to jail. <laughs> we don't care, it's still illegal to lick the seals. All charges against one of the 17 were withdrawn, while 12 of the others, including Bizier, pled guilty on October 7th for reduced sentences and withdrawal of some of the charges. Udon and Villeneuve received 12 years apiece for manslaughter. Giraud received 6 and Labonte 4 for their involvement in the death of O'Neill. Murder charges were withdrawn in the case of Schutter, but he received 10 years for 5 other charges. Denis Lamoureux received 4 years and Francois Gagnon received three for their part in the Westmont bombings. Bizier received six months in relation to the bombing of the Royal Canadian Air Force building. Jeanne Shooter, wife of Georges, and only a reluctant accomplice, received a suspended sentence. Those are pretty light sentences for people who blew up an old man, blew another man's hand off, and caused untold <laughs> thousands in structural damage. Uh, Tetro, Bachin, and Schneider were arrested in Boston three days later, on October 10th. Tetro tried and failed to claim political asylum, but all were eventually returned to Canada, where Tetro and Bachin received four years and Schneider three. Pruneau, on the other hand, escaped to Paris, where he lived for some time. The fact that you're facing a three-year prison sentence for a murder that you actually committed is, is hardly grounds for political asylum. I'm aware you're fully committed to your cause, and you believe in it to the utmost, and you don't recognize the legal authority of the imperialists in Ottawa, but you killed the dude. <laughs> you committed murder by garbage can bomb, so, you know, jail time seems appropriate. Villeneuve, released in 1967, mostly reformed. Schutter was likewise released in 1967 on the condition that he leave Canada. Oh! And was immediately put on a plane back to Belgium. <laughs> Banishment is a fun punishment. Dude got deported and they didn't even let him say bye to his kids. Oh. Cool. Back. I, I also like that, you know, you have to live in Belgium among great food and fancy waffles as a punishment. But, all right. Uda, on the other hand, joined up with his bro brother Robert in a pair of cells dedicated to fundraising via bank robbery in 1969. Uh... The brothers, alongside several accomplices, performed 31 holds up and managed to steal around $25,000 before getting arrested that May. <laughs> but in August 1963, with Udon, Villeneuve, and Schutter imprisoned, the first wave of FLQ attacks had ended, and the second wave was about to begin. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next week with another episode on bombing. Yay, more French terrorism coming at you. More French terrorism coming right at you! Uh, That's uttering threats. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and we are fat, French, French and, and fabulous. fabulous. Hey, everybody. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, do consider rating, reviewing, subscribing, or even recommending us to a friend. 
the more people who uh, listen to this podcast, uh, the less likely that I'm going to eventually end up in a nunnery. We are very much a garage band pop podcast, and every little bit helps. <laughs>